Conversations. Hello and welcome to Med Conversations. My name's Beck, and today Rahul's going to be running the show. Yes, hello everybody. We'll be talking about jaundice today and I'll be your courteous bus driver. Before we even get into that, just a bit of a shout out to ourselves. So we've got a Facebook page and a Twitter page and we'd love to hear from you if you've got any constructive criticism. Yeah, any requests for episodes, anything you want to see done, don't tell us. Um, so let's start with uh, 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 some <laughs> definitions. Uh, so jaundice or icterus, what is it, Beck? So it's a yellow discoloration of the tissue, and mm. it's from high levels of bilirubin in the blood. Also known as hyperbilirubinemia in medical language. So it's usually a sign of liver disease or a hemolytic disorder where you're breaking down too much red blood cells, and we'll talk about why that is soon. And uh, bilirubin has a high affinity for deposition in the sclera, which is why you see so many people with yellow eyes. So if someone came in yellow, Beck, just to get started here pretty aggressively, what would be your, uh, what would be your differential diagnoses? So, obviously, jaundice is something I'd be thinking about, but some of the other things are people who eat lots of carrots and things get carotenoderma. Mm. So, that's excess carotene from, oh, not even just carrots, leafy vegetables, squash, peaches, oranges. Possibly some other things as well. So, take a detailed history. Uh, the thing about those is that yellowing is concentrated in their palms, soles, the forehead wrinkles, the nasolabial wrinkles, and it spares the sclera. It's so not it's pretty, in the eyes. Yeah. There's a couple of drugs that can cause it, but they're pretty old school and they don't use it anymore, quinacrine being one of them. So, if we just talk about the production and metabolism of bilirubin first. So, where does bilirubin actually come from, Beck? It's a, it's a breakdown product of heme. So it's coming from old red blood cells that die or, right. or young red blood cells that are dying early. Yeah, that's right. So if you've got some sort of problem with your erythropoiesis, you get some young red blood cells that die early and they also produce bilirubin. So it's not soluble when it's first formed. And this is the, the unconjugated version. So it has to travel around bound to albumin because it can't just dissolve in the blood and hang out like everyone, all the other cool kids. So how does conjugation work then? Bilirubin binds to something called glucuronic acid, and that's pretty much just it. Conjugation done. Yeah, look, it is a complicated process, but don't worry about that. The main thing is glucuronic acid binds, becomes soluble in uh, thing. Bam, conjugation done, as Beck said. So then after that, it gets this. This happens in the liver, and it gets transported down the canalicular membrane, which is sort of exists in the hepatocytes and pushed into the uh, the bile ducts, and then from there it drains into the duodenum and then to the small bowel. And in the colon, it's converted back to unconjugated bilirubin and also to these urobilinogens, which give feces their color. And so 80 to 90% of it there, and the urobilinogens then go out through the feces, but 10 to 20% are reabsorbed into the bloodstream because it's soluble at that stage. And then it's re it goes sort of through this enterohepatic circulation and it's re-excreted by the liver again. When it's getting absorbed back into the blood, however, some of that urobilinogen can be filtered across the renal glomerulus because it is now soluble. So a small amount goes out through there as well. Mm. Okay, so let's talk about measurement of bilirubin. So in terms of measuring it in the serum, Beck, what are the types of bilirubin that you might measure? So on your blood test results, you're going to see direct and indirect, which is also known as conjugated and unconjugated. So vowels go with vowels. Indirect is unconjugated. That's right. And so the normal bilirubin level for most labs is 3.4 to 15.4 micromoles per litre. That's 95% of people. So it's determined, again, from a, a Gaussian distribution. And in normal people, <laughs> most of the bilirubin in the blood is unconjugated okay? because it hasn't hit the liver yet, gotten conjugated and start to roll out of there. Um, we can also measure the bilirubin in the... In the urine. That's right. 
Um, and in the urine, unconjugated bilirubin is always bound to albumin in the serum, like we said. So it doesn't get filtered out by it. It doesn't go through the glomerulus because it's attached to a protein. So anything in the urine is conjugated. And as we'll talk about later, that implies that it's probably gone through the liver and has some sort of liver disease there. Um, urine dipstick is really accurate and it's, it's a good test. So let's talk a bit about a case. We got. Yeah. Tell me about Brian. Thirty-five-year-old mm, guy Brian comes in with really, really bad abdominal pain, and you do a blood test. You smart little cookie, you, and you find that his bilirubin is one hundred and fifty. So the normal range again is three point four to fifteen point four. So patient comes in with jaundice. Beck, what would be the first things with a high bilirubin? What would be the things you want to know about this patient? So with high bilirubin, I'd want to be looking at the rest of the blood test because the differentials get limited according to whether it's an isolated hyperbilirubinemia or if the LFTs are also deranged. That's right. So under the isolated category, you also you can ask the lab to divide the bilirubin into conjugated and unconjugated for you. And you can see the fractions there. And remember, most of the stuff in the blood is unconjugated normally. Um, and then with the LFTs, you can look at the pattern there as well. And you can see whether they're cholestatic or hepatocellular. And we'll talk a bit more about that later as well. So, so what's with Brian got? Brian has deranged LFTs. There's a lot of bold all over that path report and you are freaking out right now. So we go to the approach to a hypothetical other patient. So we, this, we, if we have a patient who has an isolated bilirubin rise, so only in, the... Yeah, as in no, no LFT derangement. That's right. So only the, only the bilirubin is up. You then ask the lab to be super helpful and split it into an unconjugated and a conjugated so you can work out where it's coming from. So if you have an unconjugated bilirubin rise by itself, Beck, what would be some of the causes or mechanisms of that? So it could either be overproduction, impaired uptake, or impaired conjugation. And under each of those umbrellas, there's a few more things. That's so you right. get a listy on you. Yeah, here comes the list. Bam. Um, so overproduction, one of the causes of overproduction, like we said, bilirubin is a breakdown product of heme. So hemolysis, if your red blood cells are dying, and hemolysis just broadly, I mean, is a, is a huge podcast in and of itself, but can be inherited or acquired. Some of the inherited causes are like sickle cell anemia, spherocytosis, G6PD. Um, now, the bilirubin in these patients really goes above sort of 80 to 90 millimoles, uh, micromoles, sorry. So if you see around that level, that's a possibility. And you've got the acquired hemolysis, which is like your microangiopathic hemolytic anemias. So hemolytic uremic syndrome, TTP. And this is where malaria fits in as well. So parasitic infections can do it too. Mm. So that's hemolysis. The next little umbrella we've got is ineffective erythropoiesis. Mm. So as we said before, some of the bilirubin is coming from immature blood cells. And if you have a lot more immature blood cells dying, because you have B12 deficiency, iron deficiency, or folate deficiency, so they're not getting made properly, or you have thalassemia, so you've got a genetic abnormality where your, your red blood cells aren't getting made properly, then you'll have a lot more bilirubin floating around as well. So those are the two sort of overproduction differentials for an unconjugated, isolated bilirubin rise. And then you've got the ones where the liver isn't uptaking it properly or conjugating it properly. These are a bit more rare, and it basically boils down to drugs or a rare genetic syndrome. So the rare genetic syndrome, Krigler-Naha and Gilbert syndrome, don't really bother with those too much. But the drugs, uh, rifampicin is a common one, which is an antibiotic. Probenicid, these things can actually impair the liver's ability to uptake the, um, the bilirubin mm. and excrete it to get a unconjugated bilirubinemia. Okay. And, I, and just going back very quickly to that Gilbert syndrome, that's interesting because it's not entirely rare and it causes an asymptomatic rise in bilirubin and it's something that, that doesn't matter, mm. but good to know about uh, and if you have an isolated conjugated bilirubin, that's really rare stuff. And it basically boils down to two things, 
Rota syndrome and Dubin Johnson syndrome, but they're rare and fairly benign as well, so don't bother. But basically, all you need to know is you see conjugated bilirubin rise that's isolated, things are all good. Cool. So, what about if the patient has abnormal LFTs as well as a high bilirubin? So, well, this is what Brian has, yeah? That's right, that's right. So, how do we divide them from there then? So it can be a hepatocellular process or a cholestatic process. That's right. Hepatocellular being what, Rahul? Uh, where the pathology is actually inside the liver cells, the hepatocells, which is pretty easy, or cholestatic, which is where you have a problem with your bile ducts and it's all the bile sort of getting backed up. So now let's talk about the differentials for a hepatocellular process. Now, broadly speaking, these can be broken up into infiltration of fat into your liver, toxins, infective causes, ischemic causes, sepsis, and then your random others. So let's break those down a little bit more. Fatty liver is probably the most common. Um, then you've got toxins. What sort of toxins would cause liver problems, Beck? So the one that we see most often is paracetamol, or for the American listeners out there, acetaminophen. And then there's other drug reactions. Another common drug, alcohol. So alcoholic hepatitis can be a cause, and mushroom poisoning as well. Mm. Uh, and then in terms of infective, there are a whole host of infective causes of hepatocellular dysfunction. Most of them are viral. Uh, can you think of some of the viruses, Beck? So your hepatitises, A, B, C, D, and E. Hepatitides. Hepatitides. <laughs> um, HSV, varicella zoster, EBV, and CMV. Mm. Uh, then there's ischemic hepatitis, which is pretty significant. We'll, we may talk about that a bit later. Uh, any cause of sepsis can cause problems with the liver. And then in terms of the other category, Bud Chiari is probably one of the more common ones, which is uh, thrombosis in the hepatic veins. Um, Wilson's disease, which is copper storage problem. Hemochromatosis, which is an iron storage problem. Primary biliary cirrhosis, a genetic problem. Autoimmune hepatitis, HELP syndrome, which occurs in pregnant ladies and sinusoidal obstruction syndrome. Which I have never heard of. Mm, neither. So we've got differentials for cholestatic. We've, we've spoken about hepatocellular. Basically, in cholestatic, you've either got extrahepatic, which means there's something blocking the bile from leaving, or intrahepatic, which is also there's something blocking it, but it's a little bit more complex. It's happening inside the liver in those sort of microscopic bile ducts. So extrahepatic-wise, what can be some of the things that are blocking your, as a, your bile as it leaves down those bile tracks? Certainly the thing that I see most commonly in the emergency department is cholidocolithiasis. Mm -hmm. So that's when the, the blockage is happening in the, there's an obstruction of the common bile duct. Mm -hmm. uh, malignant obstruction is another one. So you get either a cancer of your pancreas, gallbladder, the ampulla vada, or bile duct cancer, and these things sort of grow in and then obstruct the bile ducts. Primary sclerosis and cholangitis. So these are actually extrahepatic strictures, but it's basically an inflammatory process going on there and then that all those bile ducts become scarred up and they no longer conduct the bile out of there. And strictures can also occur in a different setting as well. So chronic pancreatitis can cause some stricturing of the distal bile duct, although that's very uncommon. Mm. And AIDS cholangiopathy is basically a bile duct problem associated with AIDS, which you can keep in mind. And then you've got your intrahepatic ones. So that was all extrahepatic blockages. Your intrahepatic blockages, it's actually a very similar list to the hepatocellular list. So it's a bit confusing. Um, but know that if you have a a cholestatic picture on your LFTs, it can actually be caused by some of those hepatocellular conditions. Mm, whereas the vice versa isn't really true. Mm, that's the way. So we're taking a history now. Let's say we're taking a history from our man, Brian. What sort of things would we want to know? Okay. So like many other things, time course, time course, time course. Has he noticed this discoloration of his skin for years, weeks, months, days? Mm, 
That's right. So you want to find out everything you can about the jaundice, maybe talk to some family, see if they notice him turning yellow. Uh, then there's exposures. So have they had any infectious exposures, stuff like tattoos, intranasal drugs, sexual activity. And then there's also like recent travel and food history. And, and intravenous drugs as well. Yeah, those, yeah sure. <laughs> um, and what else? And, and we mentioned earlier toxins as well. So finding out about the, uh, medications, intentional or unintentional overdoses that might have occurred, alcohol, any occupational exposures. That's right. Um, and then there's a whole host of accompanying systems, which given that the differential list is so broad, it's actually quite broad here as well, but some of them can help you narrow it down. So arthralgias, myalgias sort of point to a more systemic infective process like hepatitis, either a drug or a viral. Um, a fever obviously suggests an infective process, but can also be an immune process. And sometimes the infective causes are overlaid over other causes. So something like ascending cholangitis that can occur in the setting of cholidocolithiasis, which brings us to the next thing to look for. And it might be quite obvious, but looking for ab- any abdominal pain, which can be a sign of those uh, surgical issues or hepatitis itself as well. That's right. And lastly, a pale stool implies that there's obstruction because, as we said before, that urobilinogen flows all the way through into the uh, the enteric area <laughs> and it gives your feces the colour. So if there's an obstruction, that might not happen. So tell me about Brian. So Brian has a past medical history of heavy alcohol use and has actually had chronic pancreatitis for a while. His, his abdo pain is coming and going, it's central radiating to his back. He's never noticed his yellowness before and he's not got any other relevant exposures that you can, you can work out. Cool. Okay, so now I imagine we're going to talk about the examination. Wrong. We're going straight to investigations. <laughs> Here we are. So if you have a patient with high bilirubin and abnormal LFTs, your physical exam, as always, will start with a general assessment. So you see what their nutritional status is like, see if they have any muscle wasting, which is common in, common in chronic diseases, and, of course, to seeing if they actually have jaundice. So, <laughs> so you look in the eyes. You can look under the tongue as well. That turns yellow. Um, and the skin, of course. Okay, so another thing is looking for any stigmata of chronic liver disease. So have they got any spider nevi, palmar erythema, gynecomastia, Caput medusa? What's what's caput medusa? So caput medusa is when you start developing superficial veins over your abdomen and it's a sign of increased pressure in your portal system because the blood starts to flow backwards and through those abdominal veins. Uh, Then you get a Dupuytren's contracture, which is where your sort of third and fourth finger, or fourth and fifth finger rather, start to contract inwards. Uh, Parotid enlargement and testicular atrophy in men, not so much in females. Cool. And looking a little bit further... And there's enlarged left supraclavicular node, so that's Virchow's node, or mm-hmm. a periumbilical nodule, which is basically a growth inside the um, umbilicus, and it's got another name. Sister Mary Joseph's nodule, a little surgical assistant from the 18, late 1800s, who uh, I don't know, did she actually find the nodule? Maybe. Yeah, she maybe noticed that she noticed the pattern. Oh, there you go. Doing Good a bit for her. feminism, and, and someone <laughs> named it after her. Yeah. She's nice, giving her credit. So that that's something that's suggestive of an abdominal malignancy. Mm, yeah, so both both an enlarged left supraclavicular node and a periumbilical nodule. Um, in right heart failure, you'll get JVP dissension, and right heart failure can be cause of a congestive hepatopathy. Uh, Kaiser Fleischer rings, which I'm sure all the Australian medical students know from Talian O'Connor, which is where you get copper depositions in the, in the, con- uh, the cornea, which leads to a, a golden ring around the eye hyperpigmentation of the skin and hemochromatosis, which can be a little bit confusing if they're jaundiced as well, but they do have quite a specific color if you look at the Google Google images. And then we come to our abdominal exam, which you have to do in all of these regardless. So what would you be looking for in the abdominal exam, Beck? 
So focusing on the liver, the size and its consistency. Um, so a cirrhotic liver, you won't be able to palpate, but a fatty liver might be enlarged. Um, and then also the spleen, checking if that's enlarged, if there's any ascites in the abdomen as well. That's right. So spleen and ascites being signs of portal hypertension. And then actually looking at the liver, cirrhotic people have an enlarged left lobe. So it's actually the, side, the bit below the xiphoid tends to be the largest bit. Uh, if it's big, nodular, and grossly grossly enlarged, then that's probably more suggestive of malignancy. And if it's big and tender, then you've probably got a hepatitis, so a viral or an alcoholic hepatitis, or congestion due to right heart failure, your blood just backing up in there because the right heart is not pumping properly. And then there's one classic sign, which they always look at in the AED, right? Well, they should look at in the AED, right? Back. Yeah, so that's Murphy's uh-huh. sign. That's when that's you right. push hard on the right upper quadrant and get the patient to breathe in and out and if the if the gallbladder that goes down on inspiration hitting your hand causes them a, causes them a lot of pain, that's said to be positive. Murphy's mm, positive. So it's an inflamed gallbladder touches your hand and they wince with pain at the top of the breath. Um, so Brian is very yellow, not just in his eyes. Uh, he's got no signs of liver disease elsewhere. He's got a very tender abdomen. Uh, he's Murph, Murphy's negative. So. Moving on a little bit, uh, talking about the LFT. So you really want to focus on AST and ALT versus ALP and GGT to differentiate between cholestatic and hepatocellular. So I've got a way of remembering this. The AST and ALT are both transaminases, so they're a pair. And I remember that ALT is a liver test. And so the rest just flows from there. You know, it's a simple rule. Um, so differentials, it, it, what's important here is how deranged the LFTs are. So if you have a mild to moderate increase in your LFTs, what kind of differentials would you expect, Beck? So that could be from routine medication use, chronic viral hepatitis, mostly um, hepatitis B and C. And in that setting, the ALT tends to be higher than the AST. In alcoholic liver disease, which is another differential for mild to moderately increased LFTs, the AST tends to be higher than the ALT, so the other way around. And patients who consume a lot of alcohol tend to also have an elevated GGT. Just to confuse you, yeah. Uh, another differential for mild to moderate increase in LFTs is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease uh, and also congestive hepatopathy, so again, due to right heart failure. Now, if the LFTs are like markedly elevated, there's sort of a separate set of differentials. So what sort of stuff would you be looking at, Bay? So I saw a girl in the emergency department last week who had her um, ALTs and ASTs in the thousands and she'd had a paracetamol overdose. Mm-hmm. So toxins. Yep. And then there's things like acute viral hepatitis, ischemia, sepsis, and we mentioned earlier Bud Chiari. Yeah, and that's the thrombosis in the hepatic veins. So back to Brian, he's got a markedly elevated GGT at 1,700 and a markedly elevated ALP at 1,000. So keep that in mind as the mystery develops. Uh, So we've got elevated GGT and ALP. That leads you to a cholestatic picture. So what do you think of next? How do you separate those out? Well, you've got to work out whether the blockage is inside the liver or outside the liver. Is intrahepatic or extrahepatic? And that distinction is made with imaging. So if you've got dilate, you're looking, you're imaging to look at the uh, bile ducts. And if they're dilated, that means there's a blockage somewhere distal to the bile ducts, which is causing everything to build up there and the bile ducts become big. And that'll give you your answer. Now, it's important to notice that you get false negatives in pl- primary sclerosis and cholangitis and also partial CBD obstruction. Right. So it's still able to get through. So it's not getting that dilation behind mm, it. That's right. So imaging wise, what options do we have, Beck? So we can do ultrasound or we can do MRCP or ERCP. Okay, so let's talk about ultrasound first. So ultrasound is normally the first thing you'll order if someone has a cholestatic uh, picture on the LFTs. And basically ultrasound will show you whether or not the 
common bile ducts, some of the distal bile ducts are, are dilated. It's a good first test. Again, false negatives in primary sclerosis and cholangitis, partial CVD uh, obstruction. But from there, you want to, if you have some dilated bile ducts, you want to be going to either an MRCP, which is an MRI cholangiopancreatography, or an ERCP, which is an endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatography. Pancreatography. I was about to give you full points for your pronunciation. Yeah, so now. close. Stumbled to the last second. Stuffed it up. Parents will never be happy with me. All right, so. How do you know which one to do? Yeah, great question. I'm glad you asked that. Uh, so. ERCP is an interventional procedure. Actually putting a scope down, which has a little appendage on the end that can get right up into the bile ducts. So you can actually go in there and you can stent things and you can remove stones. You can actually cut things and biopsy things, do all sorts of things. So if it's an acute problem that you know is causing them a lot of issue and you think you're going to have to do something about it regardless of what's going on there, ERCP is the first thing to go to. And also if you think that you're going to have to go in there, like high likelihood that they've got a stone or they've got a malignancy, the story is really consistent with that, then you should go for ERCP as well. Because again, you can go in there, you can see it, and you can do something about it at the same time. On the other hand, uh, if you uh, think it's more chronic or they have a contraindication to ERCP or you don't want to do an intervention in this person, then you can start with an MRCP. And they're really good at looking at the head of the pancreas. So people with head of pancreas malignancies that block off the bile, um, the bile ducts, MRCP is a good option there. Um, there's another thing called endoscopic ultrasound, which is basically a scope with an ultrasound tip on the end of it. That can sort of see whether your distal common bile duct is obstructed. And you can also biopsy from there, but you don't have the little ERCP gadget on the end. So you can't go up into the ducts. You can just ultrasound the ducts from inside. Okay. Awesome. So let's go back to our man, Brian. So he has an abdo ultrasound. What does that show be? So it's completely normal. Mm, so you do an MRCP because he's still suspicious about our man. And uh, it shows stricturing. Do you remember how he had chronic pancreatitis? I had forgotten that, but thank you for the reminder. Do you remember that? So so we actually go down with an ERCP and they put a stent in to open up some of those strictures and Brian starts to start flowing. All his bile starts to flow. So he becomes less yellow. Get on on you, Brian. Um, We've got a few more cases because it's such a complicated diagnostic algorithm that we figured this would help run through it. So let's give you an, let's toss another one at you, Beck. This one's a nice easy one. 23-year-old African-American man comes in with headache and nausea with fever. Two days later, his hemoglobin drops and he becomes jaundiced. You do his LFTs and the LFTs are normal aside from the bilirubin and you get a blood film because you're great. And Heinz bodies and bite cells on that blood film. So I'm hearing, I'm hearing some buzzwords here. Mm. Um, but first, if we just go back a step, we've said that the bilirubin is the only thing that's deranged, so this is an isolated bilirubinemia. So if you want to just rewind back to the start of the podcast, we'll tell you the list again, but we <laughs> won't right now. So um, these buzzwords, Heinz bodies and by cells, go with G6PD deficiency. That's right. So he's got a hemolytic anemia as a result of his G6P deficiency. When you go on a little bit more further questioning, you find out that he had some fava beans a little while ago. Um, and basically in G6PD people, fava beans or broad beans put a lot of oxidative stress and their, their blood cells start to hemolyze. So the Heinz bodies are classic for G6PD, um, the denatured oxidized hemoglobin. And bite cells are also called degmocytes. Degmocytes. Yeah, it's basically like hemoglobin's little bites taken out of it. And that's the removal of the denatured hemoglobin by macrophages in the spleen that are trying to fix everything up. Okay, let's move to another case. Beck. All right, so this, this one's a 45-year-old lady who presents you with fatigue, jaundice, and pruritus. I don't think we mentioned that earlier, but pruritus is something that, that comes about with jaundice. There's just that deposition of bilirubin in the skin that makes them itchy. Mm. I don't know why. So on examinations, she's excoriated because she's itchy and has hepatomegaly. 
you do some investigations. What investigations would you do? Classic me. Um, I'd do a bill of Reuben, I guess. Sounds like a great idea. So it's elevated. There you go. Would you Nailed do any that. other tests or just the Billy Rubin? Mm, LFTs? Yeah, so she's got a markedly elevated ALP. Ah, so we got a cholestatic picture. Okay, so as per the algorithm, we do an ultrasound and we see no dilated bile ducts. So maybe we're thinking, maybe this is an intrahepatic cause of uh, cholestasis. So I reckon next we do an anti-mitochondrial antibody. So why are you doing that? What are you looking for? Just well, out of interest. This is a lady who's sort of, you know, middle-aged lady presenting with some non-specific symptoms, probably has intrahepatic cholestasis, given that her imaging showed no dilated bile ducts. So in this population, primary biliary cirrhosis is rather common, I guess. And so an anti-mitochondrial antibody is sort of the buzzword uh, blood test for, for that condition. Yeah, and the, the buzzword even works in real life outside of exams as well. So mm, she's sometimes. positive and, and you make that diagnosis. There you go. Um, now, last case, Beck will fling this one back to you. So we've got a 36-year-old female who's just come back from a trip to Mexico. She's previously well. Uh, now she's got onset fatigue, acutely, uh, malaise, vomiting, anorexia, right up quadrant pain. And she thinks she's even got some arthralgias, myalgias, and a rash for a couple of days. It was all evanescent. It came and went. And then a week later, she developed pale stools and dark urine. And two weeks later, she developed jaundice. What do you think the diagnosis is? Hmm, okay, so it sounds quite infective to me. It was all quite acute. The arthralgia sound very infective. The rash that went away again. So I imagine that if I do LFTs on her, am I going to get an, an ALT greater than AST? That's correct. Well, there you go. So it sounds like it might be a viral hepatitis. And right. in a in a well woman who's just been to Mexico, I'd be thinking about something like hepatitis A. Yeah, so you do a little bit more probing, and it turns out she had some grey shellfish while she was over there. Recommended it highly to you. Uh, and now she's got hepatitis A. So hepatitis A often comes from seafood. Mm. And it's a transient viral hepatitis associated with this acute onset, and then you get the jaundice a bit later, and then it all resolves usually. Sometimes it can lead to a fulminant hepatitis, which is quite dangerous. So that is how you should approach a jaundice, should you ever encounter it in the wild. Um, so I hope you've enjoyed that. Again, we're totally open to suggestions, constructive criticism, just criticism. Just get onto Facebook or Twitter and let us know. Abuse. All right. Thanks, Rahul. That was great. Bye. Bye.